You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Hello again. My name is Marvin O'Connell and I'm Professor Emeritus of History at the University of Notre Dame. And I welcome the chance to continue the discussions about certain aspects of the history of the Catholic Church. But today I propose to ask you to join me in a great leap forward, leap indeed that covers a thousand years to pass from our earlier consideration of the ancient church to the era of the Reformation. It is indeed a thousand years and any literary person will tell you that you mustn't ever let your reader or your viewer fail to see the transition between one point and another. Well, despite the thousand year great leap, there is a transition. At the very end of our last discussion, we talked a little bit about that heterodoxy of the fifth century called Pelagianism, that rather extravagantly optimistic view of the human condition and of human moral possibilities. Well, what we'll see is that Pelagianism thrust itself forward again a thousand years later. Maybe that bears out the old saying that there's nothing new under the sun. Or as the cynical Frenchman likes to put it, the more things change, the more they stay the same. The thousand years had seen some considerable victories for our Catholic ancestors. When the Roman Empire collapsed in Western Europe and was overrun by hordes of barbarian Germans, the church was the only Roman institution to survive and not only did it then perform its spiritual activities, but it also acted as the agent of civilizing those same hordes. One of the great instruments in doing so was the introduction of monasticism, the foundation by St. Benedict and his sister, St. Scholastica, and then by all kinds of very famous and marvelous people over the next several centuries, of retreats into the rural countryside for men and women willing to take the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience as a way of imitating the life of Jesus in a more direct and formal way. And thus we have introduced into the life of the church at this time, at this parlous time, a whole new set of, let's call them specialized personnel. Besides the old secular clergy, now we have monks and nuns. And a little later, we have orders of friars, like the Dominicans and the Franciscans. Men and women, again, willing to undertake these high and noble adventures in spirituality and to try to bring that to bear upon the rest of society. By the 13th century, a whole new world had emerged a world which, as one historian put it, the church had made. 
Another historian, rather more adventuresomely, described the 13th as the greatest of centuries. Well, I think that's perhaps a bit of an exaggeration. It's always a little hard, isn't it, to suggest that one period of time is the greatest. That presents some severe intellectual challenges. But certainly, we can speak of the high Middle Ages as a time when at least this particular brand of Catholic life reached its epitome. We need think of only a couple of people. Thomas Aquinas, perhaps, first of all. One of the half dozen most influential thinkers in the history of the world, whose doctrines and arguments still make an intellectual impact all these hundreds of years later. Or we can think of St. Francis of Assisi, Il Poverello, the little poor man, who found a way to live the literal Christian life the way Jesus did, the Jesus who said that he had not a place to lay his head. So it was with St. Francis who stripped himself of all the consolations that we normally associate with human activity and brought to his bosom all created things, brother, son, sister, moon, and all the rest of created life and activity. I would think it would be fair to say that in our late 20th century, St. Francis might be called the patron saint of environmentalists. And then, of course, Dante, the great poet of the Middle Ages, whose divine comedy is still ranked among the greatest of all works of literature of all time. So there were victories, but there were defeats as well. Perhaps the most tragic of them was what historians call the Great Eastern Schism. That is to say, the division, definitive as it proved, between the Eastern and Western churches, between the Greek-speaking and the Latin-speaking divisions of the old Roman Empire, now split into two competing churches, Orthodox versus Catholic. What seems particularly tragic as we look back upon that event is that there never really seemed to be terribly serious differences dogmatically between the two groups, but there were very considerable cultural differences. And the result was finally by the 12th century, the end of the Union, and the Western Church went its way and the Eastern Church its way. One might hope that the new millennium will bring about a reconciliation. Another defeat in the long term, although a well-intentioned uh, movement that it was, were what we call the Crusades. The military attempt by Western Catholics to regain control of the Holy Land, the holy places where Jesus had lived and died. Well-intentioned, I say, but in the end a failure. And a failure not only because the Muslim power proved to be too much, but a failure also when one thinks of military means being used to effect the designs of Jesus who said to all of us that we must turn the other cheek. An internal crisis called the Great Western Schism, as to distinguish it from this uh, unhappy division between East and West, took place at the end of the 14th and beginning of the 15th century called the Great Western Schism. This was the time when two candidates competed 
for the throne of St. Peter. There were, in that 50 or 60 year period, therefore, two popes, each one claiming the mantle of St. Peter, and the result being a terrible scandal throughout all of the Christian world and a great weakening of the papacy as a moral center. And the Great Western Schism did indeed come to an end a hundred years before the Reformation began, but even so, it left behind terrible scars upon the church's body politic, and it seemed to be a signal or a sign of other kinds of abuses which had been gradually growing up over the centuries. Uh, sexual aberrations are the most dramatic instances of this. I don't mean perversion so much, but rather the failure of clerics to live up to their obligations to chastity and celibacy. But there was much more than that, and perhaps one could say that that, the sexual scandals, were based really on the kind of people who were becoming priests and monks and bishops and even popes. That is to say, based upon a kind of financial chicanery, a, a way of seeing the church as an avenue to great riches. And so the temptation that came upon so many really bad men to seek their careers within the church was based upon their ability to wring out of the faithful people great financial benefit. So you've got the wrong people in positions of authority, the, the teaching authority of the church, the moral exemplars, and there was a great deal of this, more and more of it, as time passed. Accompanying this, what shall we say, this undermining of the clerical estate, the moral undermining of it, was also a terrible amount of superstition among the ordinary Catholics. You have to remember that the masses of the people were illiterate. And whatever instruction they received, they received from their parish priest. But if their parish priest was a bad and grasping man, living, let us say, in concubinage, the chances of their receiving adequate instruction, adequate moral leadership, was very much undermined. These are the abuses, the ecclesiastical abuses, which form a kind of background to the movement that we call the Protestant Reformation. And although it may be said that by the time Martin Luther was born in 1483, there had begun, at least in some places, a reversal of these fortunes, of these unpleasant developments, and nevertheless, there was enough dry and rotten wood around to start a great conflagration if the right person came along to strike the match. So let us talk about a great man, a genius of one of the most influential people in the history of the West, Martin Luther. And one thing we can say as historians, with confidence, is that the reconstruction of the past by the mind from sources is going to be very adequately fulfilled in tracing the life, activity, and apostolate of Martin Luther. The invention of the printing press shortly before his birth guaranteed that the, the literary sources would be not only plentiful, but almost overwhelming. Libraries are filled with literally hundreds of volumes written by Luther himself and by other Protestant reformers, and ultimately by their Catholic opponents. It is a time rich in literary expression, and so it is a time in which our reconstruction can follow the documents almost from year to year.
One other thing before we get into the details of Luther's career, there's always been a debate among historians as to the effect or impact of individuals upon the historical process. The two sides, I'm sure, are familiar to you. There are those who argue that environment is everything and the situation and context within which the human person works out his destiny is what really matters and that the human person's individual impact is of considerably less importance. And then there are the other kind of historians like Thomas Carlyle who said with some exaggeration that all history is is the recapitulation of the lives of great men. Well, as is so often the case in these academic disputes, the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle. But surely Luther's career and his personal impact based upon his personal experience is certainly evidence that the individual does indeed have, at least at times, an overwhelming and important function. Martin Luther was born at Eiselben in Saxony. And he died in that same place, curiously, because he only lived there as a child for a few years. But circumstances brought him back there in 1546, and he died there at the age of 63. Luther's father was a miner who had used what little capital he could accumulate to build for himself a contracting business. He was, in a small way, a self-made man, and he was a very tough fellow. I suppose he had to be a tough fellow if he were to succeed in the hurly-burly of late medieval economic situation. He was prosperous enough to provide for Martin a good education, however with this qualification, a good education as measured in terms of Saxony, Eastern Germany, which was at the time a pretty backward place when compared to the rest of Europe, or say compared to the career of the other great reformer, John Calvin, the Frenchman, who was educated at the University of Paris. Luther could never have claimed that kind of intellectual seasoning, but as we shall see, that mattered really very little. He received a Bachelor of Arts degree from the University of Erfurt, which was not far from his Saxon birthplace. And a few years later, he received a master's degree, an MA, from the same institution. These degrees, if you try to match them to collegiate degrees of today, it probably is fair to say that the BA would be roughly equivalent to a junior college certificate, while the MA would approach something like our undergraduate BA. Something that has always tickled my fancy about Luther's university experience is this, that his MA class, the Master of Arts program that he was in, was relatively small. There were 17 people in it, and Luther came out second. Don't you wonder whatever happened to the fellow who came out first? I don't know that history has paid the slightest attention to him. Uh, here is one instance where second place was even better. As a student, Luther was very popular among his peers. He studied hard, but he also played hard. And one of the things that made him popular and why he was fun to be with and sort of the life of the party was that he was sort of naturally gifted musically. He sang beautifully, could play uh, instruments, not 
like Arthur Rubinstein or anything, but, but adequately. Of course, at a party, somebody who can provide the musical setting for it is always very popular. He was also, however, noted for his piety, not in any narrow or objectionable or, or pietistic sense, but just somebody who was very careful about his moral activities, who participated in uh, religious practices very carefully, went to mass often, that kind of thing. Now there's a bit of a hole in the sources just at the time when Luther finished his master's program. This much we know. Luther's father, a hard-nosed businessman, wanted his son to have all the advantages that he, Hans Luther, the, the father, had not had as a, as a rude and inexperienced young miner. So he insisted that Martin go to law school. Martin came home after he got his master's degree in the late spring or early summer of 1505. He was 22 years old. And apparently, and here's where the hole in the sources occurs, apparently he got into a terrific argument with his father. He, Martin, said, I want to be a priest. I want to be a monk. And the old man said, none of that. You have been given opportunities to get ahead in the world. You've been given things that I never had, that your mother never had. A familiar argument, I think, between, between a parent and child on occasions of this sort. Martin, remembering the fourth commandment, at least for, for a moment, went back to Erfurt then, from the place where the Luther family had settled, Mansfeld, not all that far away. He went back to enroll in the law school. He was able to go by horseback, which is a sign of the prosperity of his family, incidentally. And as he was riding across the fields on July 2nd, 1505, in the middle of the day, there came a tremendous rainstorm, one of those sudden storms that comes up with the thick black clouds and the lightning and the thunder. And the lightning struck nearby as Luther was riding across the fields, frightened the horse who threw him, uh, Martin falling on the ground, and lightning struck nearby again, followed, of course, by the growl, the mutter, the force of the thunder, and he was terribly frightened. And he cried out in his fear, St. Anne, St. Anne, save me, and I will be a monk. Why the invocation of St. Anne? Well, tradition says that St. Anne was the mother of the Virgin Mary, and she is honored so in the Catholic liturgy. She was, and this is more to the point, she was the patroness of minors. And so Hans Luther, having been a minor in his youth, the devotion to St. Anne was a familiar one in the Luther family. And so Martin had been brought up, so to speak, to venerate the mother of the Virgin Mary. This is July 2nd, 1505. When the storm passed, Luther got up went into Erfurt and promptly joined the Augustinian order. He was fulfilling the vow that he had made as he lay upon his back looking up into the black sky. Less than two years later, he was ordained a priest, 1507. At the first mass, as he remembered it many years later, he was terrified at the notion that he held in his hand the very body of Jesus Christ. 
But he also remembered the fact that at the first mass banquet afterwards, the sort of celebratory meal that was then and still is part of the celebration of a newly ordained priest, that his father was sitting at the table. And as is usually the case, and I went through this myself now, how many, 41 years ago, people, friends, associates, get up and say something nice about the newly ordained, and then the newly ordained himself gets up and thanks everybody. You always start by thanking God, thanking your parents, thanking your teachers. You thank everybody you can think of, and it's a wonderful, wonderful moment, of course. Well, when Luther started thanking everybody, beginning with Almighty God for calling him to the priesthood, at the end of the table, Hans Luther had his mug. He started to pound the mug on the table, making a terrible racket. And he said, uh, you're thanking the God who issued the fourth commandment, which says, honor thy father and thy mother. And in doing this, you have broken that commandment. Maybe, said old Hans, maybe it was the devil who put this into your mind. Did you ever think of that, my wayward son? It's hard to say how much effect Hans Luther's condemnation had upon his son. Hans Luther now passes out of the pages of history as perhaps he even passed out of the life of his son. But Martin now began to study theology for the first time. Notice there was no prolonged seminary experience whereby he could test his vocation and indeed the authorities looking at him could make some judgments about whether or not they felt he was in fact called to the priesthood. There were no seminaries in those days. Seminaries are places of training for the clergy come out of the Reformation era as a kind of attempt to provide for a morally and intellectually trained clergy, which was not the case before. In 1509, Luther was sent by his Augustinian superiors to the town of Wittenberg, also in Saxony, where there was a university, very recently founded, only 10 years old, and an Augustinian house. The Augustinian order to which Luther now belonged was heavily involved in teaching at Erfurt, but also at Wittenberg. And here he continued his theological studies, but he was also very much like a graduate student in an American university today, that is, he was not only studying, he was also teaching. He was like a graduate assistant. This happens in all universities. Graduate students pay for their keep, really, by their willingness, or maybe not always willingness, but the necessity that they teach undergraduates. Well, that's the sort of thing Luther was doing. And I make this point because Luther was not theologically a well-educated man. He had a great gift for languages, however, which was to be terribly important in his work. But in terms of sophisticated training, he really didn't have any. Well, I shouldn't put it that way. He, he had a kind of standard course. But there was nothing remarkably outstanding about the kind of preparation that he received. Even so, in 1512, he was awarded the doctorate in sacred theology. Between 1513 and 1517 emerged the basic doctrine which we associate with the Lutheran movement and with Protestantism generally. We can trace the evolution of it in Luther's mind primarily through the class notes of his that have survived. 
a very good source for seeing how in the course of teaching theology in the university that his ideas germinated and then came to a kind of fruition. As background, however, we should also stress the fact that his superiors found him to be an extremely valuable person, and they had all sorts of jobs for him. Besides teaching, he was also a very, very favored preacher, very much in demand in parishes round about Wittenberg. He also had some administrative work to do. All in all, he was very, very busy. And although this may seem irrelevant, it's not. He was doing all these good things and trying very hard to be an ideal priest and an ideal Augustinian. It's important, therefore, to bear in mind that Luther was very conscientious. Some of the polemic that came out of the Reformation suggested that Luther was a bad priest or unfaithful to his vows. This is certainly not the case. And it would be wrong to even hint at such a thing because there's no substance to it. Quite to the contrary, he was probably doing too much. Anyway, busy as he was, he was also very unhappy. And he was unhappy because he was scrupulous in fulfilling his obligations, and yet he didn't seem to be able to register any real spiritual progress. And this bothered him immensely. The scrupulosity showed itself, for example, that he started going to confession every day, every day if you can imagine that, until the confessor told him he had to stop this. He said, the confessor said to him, now, you, you've got to have some trust in God's mercy. Well, God's mercy seemed very elusive to, to Luther. He also took upon himself horrific acts of penitence, not only the demands which were made of him as a priest, as an Augustinian. Remember, he had the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. He lived up to those. He lived up to the rule of the Augustinian order. He did all these good things and added to them, as I say, horrific penitences, using what is uh, euphemistically called the discipline, which is a mini-thonged whip, which he would use in the darkness of his own cell at night, whipping his legs, inflicting pain upon himself as a way of trying to purify his soul and he was found at least once unconscious in the morning with blood all over the floor from this exercise. And yet, it seemed to him that despite living up to all these obligations, performing all these good works, saying Mass every day, and participating in all the rest of the sacramental life of the Church, he was, if anything, worse because of it. And it began to ponder about what seemed wrong with the conventional teaching of the church. What was that conventional teaching? Well, it's something pretty familiar, I'm sure, but let me just suggest in a kind of outline what it was that Luther thought was true, but which he was beginning to wonder whether it wasn't an aspect of Pelagianism. The conventional teaching was, of course, that people are justified, that is to say, they go through the process of becoming saved 
and pleasing in God's sight and ultimately brought into the delights of the beatific vision through faith and good works, believing what God revealed through Christ, but also obeying the commandments, participating in the sacramental life of the church, particularly in the Eucharist, observing the so-called evangelical councils, that is, they take being good to the poor and the sick and all that kind of thing, a whole panoply, a whole complexus, if you like, of activities, of works, good works, that contribute to this process of justification, where you pass from the state of original sin into which we are all born, which is displeasing to God, and then into his pleasure and to his acceptance. Well, Luther was doing all that, plus more, and still he could not believe that God was smiling at him. There are psychohistorians who say that he was still worrying about his father. When he thought of God the Father, he thought of old Hans pounding his mug on the table at the time of his first mass. That's unprovable, of course, but the fact remains that the whole concept of a grace-filled life, which was the conventional Catholic teaching, became more and more difficult for him to accept. The Catholic expression is sanctifying grace. That is, that there inheres within the believer, who is also performs the good works, observes the commandments and all that, says his prayers, is good to the poor, that there is a real state of intimacy and friendship between the individual person, the human person, and God himself, which is called sanctifying grace. It's invisible, you can't see it. But those who explained it in, to Luther and before his time and since his time, adverted to parables that Jesus told the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, is like a mustard seed, the smallest of the seed. You put it in the ground, and then a, a little tree comes, a tree big enough for the birds of the air to make their nests in it. You can't see the mustard seed. It's invisible. But it has this, this power to grow and increase and fructify. Or, said Jesus on another occasion, the kingdom of heaven is like the leaven which a woman puts into to the dough. And then the leaven acts, you can't see it acting, it's invisible, but it is a presence. It's really there, and it is responsible for the rising of the loaf and then the sweetness of the bread. Luther had great difficulty with this. And the more he thought about it, the more he ransacked the scriptures looking for some kind of consolation, some kind of confirmation, he couldn't find it. At least, he couldn't find it to satisfy himself. He thought often of that terribly poignant line from one of St. Paul's epistles. The good that I will, I do not. The evil that I will not, that I do. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? That quotation rang in Luther's ears. And more and more he thought, what I've been taught and what I've been teaching myself about sanctifying grace and good works is Pelagianism. Original sin, he said, and it was a logical step for him to take, original sin is not just the darkening of the intellect and the weakening of the will, 
as the conventional Catholic teaching goes. Original sin is total depravity. It is a vileness which continues and perdures throughout the life of the Christian believer. How else, he said, can I explain the fact that all the good works I do, I don't get any better. I still am tempted uh, by sexual fantasies. I'm still tempted by a bad temper. I'm still ready to follow my ambitions rather than to follow the literal message of Christ. Why is that? It's because I am so bad. I am, and here of course is a key concept, I am incapable of performing good works. And not only I, but every human being is incapable of performing good works. Well, Luther was not the kind of man to sit still when coming face to face with a conviction of this profundity. He had to find a solution. And in a very mysterious moment, the uh, details of which we know only from his reminiscences many years later, he went through at some time in 1516, what I guess we would call today a conversion experience. What that meant to him, and what indeed that phenomenon meant, not only for the great Protestants of the 16th century, but for the great Catholics as well, was a kind of personal confrontation with Jesus Christ in some mystical or semi-mystical way in which illumination followed upon this moment of confrontation. A slight tangent. Uh, you've all seen Dr. Billy Graham and other television evangelists, or perhaps you've experienced them personally, and you recall that always at the end of their presentation, they call upon their hearers to accept Christ as their personal savior. And then, as you remember, Dr. Graham will then sort of step back from the podium and people, not everybody in the audience, but of course, Lord, he has sometimes 60, 70, 100,000 people in his audiences, but a goodly number of them will come forward and testify to this moment of conversion that they have experienced as a result of Dr. Graham's preaching. Well, that's as close as we can come in our own time to identifying the sort of psychological impact that this moment had upon Luther. Many years ago, the Lutheran Church of America produced a movie about Luther, which was really quite remarkably good, quite remarkably unbiased, unprejudiced. It wasn't an attack upon Catholics or anything of the sort, but it was an attempt to get something of the real spirit of Luther and to sort of visualize this conversion business I've just been talking about. There's a scene in which Luther is shown sort of pacing back and forth in his little study. And on a rostrum nearby is a copy of the Bible. And as he's going back and forth across the room, you can see the tortured look in his face. And suddenly he turns to the Bible and he walks over and he flips a few pages and there is the 16th verse of the first chapter of St. Paul's Epistle to the Romans. And the text reads, the just man lives by faith. Now the word just in that sentence had for the theologians of Luther's time, a very technical meaning. It meant the justified person. 
the person who had gone through this process of justification and had moved from a state of sinfulness to a state of friendship with God. And Luther looks down, as the movie depicts it, he looks down at that text and at that verse, and he reaches over to his desk, he picks up a quill pen, and he writes the word alone after that. The just man lives by faith alone. Not by good works, but by faith. And here was Luther's solution. It is true that we are ravaged by original sin, depraved by it, but our escape from that is faith. And it is our only escape. It is the only way in which we can come to terms with the essential evil that dwells within us. The word faith. Catholics have a tendency to think of faith primarily as an intellectual act, that is to say, the acceptance of certain propositions as true because God has revealed them. So we have, I believe in God the Father Almighty, etc., etc., etc. There are the, this list of things that we have to accept as true if we are going to be faithful people. Now Luther doesn't disdain that meaning, but he reverses the order, so to speak. To him, the psychological and moral aspect of faith is what he means when he says human beings are justified by faith alone. That is, the emphasis is on this acceptance, this acceptance of Christ, personal acceptance. Again, <laughs> the theologians won't leave us alone. I mean, they always introduce a technical terminology. I'm not being unpleasant to them. You have, they have to do that in order for us to understand. They use the term that Luther's faith was fiduciary faith. Fiducia in Latin means trust. And that's the emphasis that Luther places upon the word faith. When he says we're saved by faith alone, he didn't mean primarily acceptance of certain truths. He meant acceptance of Christ himself. And this is the sort of gospel example that he would give. That when Jesus was going around doing good, in Galilee during his public life, and somebody would ask him for a favor. A blind person would say, Lord, you can cure me. And Jesus would say, do you believe me? Do you accept me? Do you trust me? This is what faith is, because even if you look at it from the intellectual point of view, we accept, we accept the truth of these propositions in the creed, because we trust the person telling us. If the person telling us was a liar or was an ambivalent, ambiguous kind of person, we won't believe, even on the human level. If somebody said to you the Chicago Cubs actually won a pennant in 1960, we, we know that's a lie, of course. But whether or not we would accept it if we're not in a position to check it ourselves, would depend on whether we trusted the person. And when you trust somebody, to use the Shakespearean expression, you bind yourself to that person with hoops of steel. You come so close because you, so to speak, give your mind over to that person and you say, look, you can fill it with any nonsense you like, including that the Cubs won the pennant in 1960, because I trust you. This was the faith which alone justified.
a couple of other technical terms which I hope will make all this clearer. What Luther was proposing is what has come to be called, he didn't call it this, but the, the later commentators came up with this expression, extrinsic justification. That is, justification is something that happens outside of you. It doesn't change you internally. See, what he's doing away with is that notion of sanctifying grace, that notion of that there is really good dwelling within, imperfect of course, but good nevertheless dwelling within the Christian believer. This is what went against his experience. He didn't feel anything good inside himself. All he felt was vileness, a cesspool. That's all that was there. Well, the justification doesn't change that. The process doesn't change it. It's something that covers one from the outside. And so the use of the term extrinsic justification. Here's a simple kind of model of that sort of thing, that the human soul is a vile and putrid and unutterably disgusting thing because of the depravity of original sin. That's the way we're all born. Jesus Christ comes to earth, leads his public life, is crucified, all for us, all for us. And he has these merits the merits of his infinite love for the Father and his love for us and the sacrifice he made for us. And that's like a beautiful cloak. And the beautiful cloak of Jesus' life and merits is tossed over this vile cesspool so that God, the Father, peeking from behind a cloud, if you don't mind a rather infantile application of this, peeking from behind the cloud, looks down, and what God the Father sees is this beautiful cloak, the merits of his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. And on the basis of that, the person is justified. But if someone would come along and pick up the corner of the cloak and look underneath, well, one would be overwhelmed by the filth and stench of moral loathsomeness. There's a Latin phrase to encapsulate that, simul justus et peccator. There's a contradiction there, but that didn't bother Luther. Simul justus et peccator. At the same time, one is just and one is a sinner. And that to him explained his own strange spiritual life. And it brought consolation to him and it brought consolation to millions of other people. It would be wrong to fail to say, quite candidly and explicitly, that literally millions of people have found this explanation satisfying. It is at the root of all Protestant thought. The word Protestant itself is one that leaves a lot to be desired in terms of explaining anything to us a point to which I would like to return in a later meeting with you. It is certainly true that Protestants differ from one from another in various details. For example, Luther abominated the Mass because it purported to be the greatest good work that the Christian community performs. It is the good work of offering the Son of God to his Father. Well. To Luther, that was blasphemous because human beings are incapable of good works. And so what you're doing is pretending you're going through a blasphemous kind of show. Yet, Luther 
never gave up the idea that Jesus was truly corporeally present in the Eucharist, the doctrine which we normally call the real presence. Most of his Protestant followers did not go along with him on that. But to him, it was so clearly in the scripture that he couldn't deny it. And he came up with some really quite outlandish arguments in order to make sure that it wasn't the mass, the Catholic mass, but nevertheless there was this real presence of Jesus. You find a lot of contradictions in Luther's teaching, but his moral fervor really, in a sense, overcame all of that. In 1517, one of the worst abuses then going on in the church was the selling of indulgences. And Luther used the culmination of a series of events to make his original statement of his views and to, to bring out into the open, into the public, in the academic community first of all, but then in the larger community as well, his own determination to reform the Neo-Pelagianism that he saw all around him. An indulgence, I was going to say was, I guess I can say is, although it's not the sort of thing that we think much about or deal with much in the contemporary church. Nevertheless, an indulgence is the remission of the temporal punishment due to sin. It's not the forgiveness of sin. It's the remission of the temporal punishment. That is to say, the punishment that attaches to moral evil in one's own lifetime. Sin the theologians of the Middle Ages said, has two kinds of punishment. Eternal punishment, for mortal sins particularly, and then temporal punishment. The usual things that we all have to put up with, of pain and bereavement and uh, disappointment and all the rest of the, of the unpleasantnesses that attach to human life, part of the temporal punishment due to sin. And if enough of that punishment has not been brought forward in the individual Christian's life, then he has to make up for that in purgatory. That is a kind of halfway house between hell and heaven in which the souls of those who are saved but not yet purified are maintained until the temporal punishment is exacted from them. This is a set of ideas that grew up toward the end of the Middle Ages and was perfectly in harmony with the faith of the people at the time, and indeed, if we understand it correctly, perfectly compatible with our own faith. The best way to understand an indulgence is rather to use the verb than the noun, to indulge, to indulge. You don't indulge your enemies, you don't indulge strangers, but you do indulge your friends. You do a favor for your friends, or you indulge your loved ones. You do a favor for your loved ones. And the idea, therefore, was that the Catholic believer who was in the state of grace was a friend of God. And if he was a friend of God, God would indulge him, do him a favor. That is to say, through some good works like almsgiving, prayer, fasting, God would indulge the believer who would perform these good works, and the result would be remission of some of the temporal punishment due to sin. It was a pious kind of activity, in other words. You notice I mentioned almsgiving as one of the good works. For example, you could get an indulgence in the late Middle Ages by endowing a hospital or building a bridge. 
Bridges were very hard to build in those primitive times, and so that kind of financial activity could itself be indulged by Almighty God. You can see the danger. The danger was to go out into the countryside and to sell the indulgence. In other words, to say, give me some money and then I will see to it that you get an indulgence. The particular indulgence of 1517 was a terrible thing, a terribly scandalous thing. It was preached in various parts of Europe. It was sanctioned by the Pope who was going to take a cut of the amount collected. It was by all odds the most scandalous kind of activity you can imagine. The little poem that one of the preachers used, every time a coin in the box drops, out of purgatory a soul pops. You can imagine the vulgarity of all that. Luther used the indulgence as preached in his own neighborhood, this terrible uh, travesty, as the occasion for raising his protest, the protest of the 95 Theses. On October 31st, 1517, the Halloween, the eve of the Feast of All Saints, he attached to the door of the major church in Wittenberg these 95 propositions, which were not a, intended as a revolutionary statement, but rather were intended to bring about a debate on the issue of indulgences. In an era without television or radio or newspapers, to put something on church doors was very, very common. It was an ordinary way to make a public announcement. That's what the 95 Theses were. But as we know, history now has changed all that has changed it for better and for worse. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.